I might have uh, Graham preach the sermon. It'll probably be shorter, but louder. I'm sure most of you are like, I'll take it. <laughs> we are coming to our third uh, sermon in the series for Advent. Our series this year is Emmanuel, God's promise to a weary land. Jason began in Isaiah, where we see the word Emmanuel first introduced in Isaiah 7. And, and the promise is that God is going to come near to his people. Last week, we saw that fulfilled with Jesus. We looked at Jesus being fully human. And the thought that he had to be completely human to take on our sin, to cover our sin. You hear it? And in doing that, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. But this morning, we're going to look even further that God, uh, Emmanuel, God comes near us. That through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in us. And that's kind of a mysterious concept. And so I have a lot of stuff I want to say, and I'm going to try to do it in like the normal time, like 30 minutes. I really want to say this, though. It's very, very helpful. Like it's very important stuff. And I find myself as a pastor who studies theology and gone through seminary forgetting this daily. I really mean that. That's not just my way of trying to say, hey. Like I really come back to this and go, oh, my goodness, I did it again. And that's what we're going to talk about, how we forget the reality of what our adoption means and what the Holy Spirit means in us. So uh, our passage from Galatians 4, 1 to 11 is, will be where we focus, although I'll jump around a little. And uh, just to kind of tell you what's happening, the Galatian church came to faith through Paul's preaching of the gospel, and they believed, and they had a great beginning, but then they began to lose sight of that. They began to try to get better to improve their Christian lives through other means. I think we all struggle with that. And one of the telltale signs of that struggle is you lose joy. You lose enthusiasm. You become a boring Christian. You become a dull person. You become backbiting and gossip-filled and slander-filled. And so Paul is not talking to a group of people kind of like the Corinthians who had gone off the kind of crazy train. He's talking to people who think they're doing really good Christian work, and yet they've gone the other way towards sins of the elder brother, sins of, of, of um, trying to perfect themselves by the flesh. So he's explaining this understanding to them. In chapter 3, he asks, who bewitched you? That's a fascinating, I love that language. And he says this, let me ask you, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now he doesn't say, let me ask you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? That's what we would assume he would ask. He doesn't say that. He says, basically, how did you get the Spirit? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? The assumption is, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit doesn't come to us in measurements. Like, I started with a, a pint, but as I grew, I got a gallon. Through my dark seasons, I go back to the pint or even a little thimble. No. You have the Spirit dwelling in you if you're a Christian. And yet... Though they had the Holy Spirit, they had moved away from the realities of that Holy Spirit and moved toward themselves, which is where I want to focus our attention. So his job is to write to, in this letter of Galatians, a group who've lost sight of that, yet he's got to also interact with a team of people that are in that church, because he's not there, who have infiltrated, and they're saying, you've got to become Jewish. You've got to add all of these things to make yourself better. 
And so he's trying to deal with both. And at the end of chapter 3, he says, listen, the law came through Moses, but we're, we're talking about Abraham and the promises of redemption from Abraham, which is Jesus. And Abraham promised that there would be an heir. And so you Jews are, are the heirs, are the recipients of the gospel, as are you Galatian church, Gentiles. I know it's getting confusing. So where we pick up in verse 4 is him explaining this further. Excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, that's the Jewish religion in the Old Testament, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then listen to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, you can imagine somebody in the Galatian church thinking, but I wasn't Jewish. What about me? So in verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, right, that's predestination. God came to you, said, I'm coming to you to rescue you. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And then in verse 15, um, Paul says this. What then has become of your blessedness? A better translation, joy is really what he has in mind, but it's joy leading to action. Listen to the action that they had done for him. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul came to them with an eye condition in the midst of his ministry. They were so excited by the gospel that in addition to following him and forming a church and worshiping Jesus, he's saying they may have even gone so far as to like hand them, it's hyperbole. I don't think that would have worked. I don't think they had eye transfusions back then or now. But anyway, that's the gospel. Paul's excited. I'm excited. It's snowing. We have a few minutes to discuss this, so let's pray and dive in. Father, we praise you that your gospel is so pure that uh, we can't even comprehend it. Even when we do grasp it, there's a sense that we don't grasp it enough. Lord, there are layers upon layers in our hearts that follow the elemental principles of this world. Lord, that is, there are parts of our lives where we still live as orphans. Even though we're Christians, Lord, it's possible that we live out parts of our lives as if we're not. Thank you that your gospel saves us even from that. We pray this morning that it would penetrate us to even see redemption to those places. Not that we would then go to heaven, we already are, but that we would actually reflect you more in a dying world. Amen. One of my favorite uh, play, uh, old Puritan books is a book by a man named Walter Marshall. 
called the gospel mystery of sanctification. You couldn't find it for a long time, so my pastor uh, found a copy and labored over updating it, and it's published, and it's a pretty good book. But since then, it's been found and published, and you can find it on a Kindle for 99 cents. I wish it was like $100, you might go buy it. I tell you, it's 99 cents. It's like, ah, I may, I may look into that. I would recommend you download that book and read it. One thing about the Puritans is they repeat themselves over and over and over and over. If you aren't familiar with the Puritans, I don't mean the way you were taught about Puritans in school, like the, the Mayflower. I mean like the English, um, godly men and women who realized they were living in a generation of unbelievers and they rediscovered the beauties of the word and the gospel. One of the things Walter Marshall says, and I think it's so important and what I want to talk about, is that I think most of us, this is what I'm talking about forgetting, most of us don't realize that God is not trying to redeem our flesh. If you look at how most of us live our Christian lives, we live under the delusion that our persons are going to get better. I'm going to become a better me. That's not what Jesus does or says. What he does is he gives you a new person, a new man. And so many of our failed attempts at growth come from our hoping that we'll read the Bible, have some good instruction, and then we'll go do it. Whereas that's not, that's not going to work. Last week we talked about temptation, and I tried to show that temptation is trying to go it alone. That's how Jesus was tempted. He was tempted by Satan to, hey, maybe God has failed you. Try this on your own. And my concern is that Christians, and this is what was happening in Galatia, we can begin trying to perfect ourselves on our own. That's what happened in chapter 3. He says, who bewitched you? Are you now trying to protect yourself in the flesh? It's possible to try to become a better Christian in the flesh. Our culture doesn't even think that way. We think if you're trying to become better, more power to you, keep it up. That's better than what the alternative is. And the reality is that attempt will crush you and kill you. The goal is to actually move into a deeper understanding of our union with Christ. We've been talking about mysteries in the Bible, the Trinity. You'll never fully understand the Trinity. I don't, I don't think in heaven we'll fully understand the Trinity. The, the natures of Jesus, right? Man and God, 100% and 100%. It's not logical. That's another mystery. The third one we've hinted at, and we'll see today, is the relationship of, of us as humans with Jesus and our union with Christ. It's called a mystical union, and we can't get our mind around it because it feels like we're doing it, but we know in Scripture Jesus is doing it through his spirit, okay? So what I hope we'll see this morning, uh, and I'm going to just, I won't, we're not going to read all of Galatians, but toward the end of chapter 5, he says, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. My goal is that we'll think of that as a dance. I, often we think of that as walking, like I'm trying to keep up with the Spirit, but it's a dance, right? It's a, there's a partner and he's the lead. It's the Spirit of Christ guiding you, and our, our challenge is to not try to move him and do it on our own and go solo, but to actually keep in step with the Spirit with every area of our life. So, we're going to have a lot of letter P, P's for our outline. Prop, uh, we're going to look at the position, the purpose, and partnership. Those are our three initial P's. I'll try to move quickly. Position, okay? In verse 4 of our passage, chapter 4, 
verse 4, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come. That is so profound. He's not saying at one point someday this happened. He's saying this is the very thing that history is pointing to. After the fall in the garden when sin came in and created destruction, a curse, there, became, there was a prophecy that one day, someday, the seed of the woman would rescue fallen man. And that's Jesus. And so in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, something. What is that something? And it's a, it's a flowery picture that's far beyond just the birth narrative, though it does include his incarnation. It's the whole thing. He says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. His purpose, verse 5, is to redeem those who are under the law. So that we might be receive what? Adoption as sons and daughters. Adoption. So when the fullness of time had come, God's plan was carried out in adoption. What happened in the garden? There was a death came in and a separation. Adam and Eve were no longer rightful children of Yahweh, the triune God. And the longing of the entire Old Testament is for this fullness of time to come when we would become adopted as sons and daughters. And then it says, how does that happen? Because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That is your position in Christ. That is what you are. If you're a Christian, you are a son, a daughter in Jesus. Not just on good days, not on those good seasons. You are. If you're a Christian, you're a son, Daughter of God, fully loved, fully cherished. Does that mean you, no, we'll talk about the implications as we go. J.I. Packer famously says this. You sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much that person makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship and prayer and your whole outlook on life, it means that you what? Aren't a Christian? Possibly. That's not what Packer says. It means that you just don't understand Christianity very well. And our hope is this. The Galatians, for the most part, we don't know about all the different members and how it works, but that church, according to Paul, was a Christian church, and they had Christians, but they had lost sight of this reality. So at any moment, we all need to ask, do I really believe, am I, I mean, do I believe? If you're not a Christian, of course that's the right question. Have I actually received Jesus? Have I, have I ever come to him? But if you're struggling in your faith, that doesn't make you not a Christian. It makes you one struggling with unbelief. And the goal this morning is to come back to this position of understanding you are a son, a daughter, of God because of the adoption of the Spirit. Now, there's so much confusion about the Holy Spirit in our culture. I think the two major mistakes are we don't talk about that on one side, or we talk so much about it, we make up stuff. Like, we just make up crazy things about the Spirit because we don't know what else to do. And when you find the Holy Spirit in the Bible, it's always the Spirit of the Father or the Spirit of the Son. There's something about the Holy Spirit is like, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. 
Look at the Father, right? And so the, the goal of the Spirit is to remind you and to actually apply to you the actual way that you receive your justification, your adoption. That's your positional, what you have when you become a Christian. Point number two, though, there's a purpose of the Holy Spirit, and that is this, to redeem those under the law. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make you holy. Now, I heard a sermon in seminary where a guy said that, and it drove me, so I get, that word is loaded, so we need to gently unpack it. But the point is, the Spirit makes you different. He sets you apart. He sanctifies you, right? He brings flourishing to you. Now, all of us want flourishing. I think it's a natural human trait to want to get better. That's part of our, I think, imagio dei, the image of God. We want to grow and get better. The Galatians certainly did. Their problem was they were being perfected not by the Spirit anymore. They had begun to focus on law-keeping, doing certain things by which they hoped to get better. And so their, the Spirit um, had become second class to them, and they began to focus on those things. And so rem- reminding you of Galatians 3, he says, let me ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Of course, the answer is by faith. In verse 3, he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The assumption he's making is, A, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. You're adopted. I've already made that point several times. But secondly, that you'll also move forward in your life in the same way that you came to Christ, in the Spirit. Now, there's this word we have to play with a little bit to understand to make this make sense. In verse 3 of chapter 4, I don't know if the scripture is behind me, if we can pull it up. Paul, in that first paragraph, is talking to the, the Jewish nation as a whole, sort of, here's what happened for Jews. They were heirs. They went through a season that appeared to be like slaves. That means the law kind of encapsulated them. We'll talk more about Romans 7 and 8 later where Paul says that when the law came to life, I died. Like, it enslaves you. But then when the time fully came, they were freed, right? But in verse 3, it says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, that's in that season, that's the Jewish nation, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. A lot of theologians have tried to figure out what that even means. Like, what are the elementary principles of the world? And so what we, what we know for sure is the, uh, uh, the word elemental, elementary, not like childish, elemental, like fabric of the world, the things you can touch and feel and see. The law, and he's talking mostly about the ceremonial law, were outward things you could do. You could see it done. And the word principle, some versions say elemental spirits. Paul seems to be saying that it's possible that the law, which was amazing, could have been used by demons to imprison. Right? And you find that again in Romans 7. He's like, when the law came to life, I died. And I, and I was trapped. Now, I think he chooses that language to make Gentile believers understand, if you go to verse 8, where he picks up for the Galatians, he says, formerly when you did not know God, you also, I'm, I'm adding the word also, were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be made known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. 
remember in Romans 2, Paul will say, you had Gentiles found the law and created a law unto themselves. Here, here's the point. All of us want to get better. That's a human trait. Even when you're apathetic and you don't want to get better, it weighs on you because something in your spirit says, I should be getting better, right? It's a human trait. It's the way we're designed. But the fallen nature is, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to go out and make myself better. And so that's driven, I believe, by evil. When I use the word evil, I mean the world is evil. Our flesh is evil, but also the, the demons, the demonic forces that we believe exist, swirl together in some fourth mystery, I don't know how that works, to, to, to make us believe I can become better on my own. Isolation, which is what we talked about last week with temptation. So I want you to begin to think when you think of sin, not primarily about the things you do that you know is wrong, the stuff you don't want anyone to know about. I want us to begin to think about sin as that, of course, that's the outward manifestation, but the inner desire to live apart from God, to go it alone. So this leads us to our third point of partnership. The purpose of the Spirit is to sanctify us by delivering us from the slavery of the elemental principles, but th that specifically happens through point three, partnership. That's our third P, position, um, the purpose, and now we're at partnership. The purpose of the Spirit is to deliver us from this, I, this longing to be alone. Again, the most misunderstood concept in Christianity, I think, is this idea of the new man. And I think if you just search your own memory banks and your own experiences as a Christian, oftentimes when you come around what discipleship looks like, what Christianity looks like, there's this kind of language of becoming better and solid and having it together in Christ, right? But in Galatians 2, Paul famously says, I individually have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then the very, he, two verses later, who has bewitched you? You began in the spirit. Why are you now trying to do it on your own? Do you see what he's saying? Do you all like partnership in general? Some of us do. Most of us don't. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't know where to pick on, but like, I think of like, I've never learned to fly an airplane, but there's that day where you, what, you learn to go solo. I do it by myself, right? Children want to do things by themselves. Bands like Simon and Garfunkel, you're doing so great. I want to go solo. They break apart. Never hear from Garfunkel again. Simon did okay. What is it in our soul that longs to be by ourselves, right? The moment you get offended, the moment your feelings are hurt, the moment you're pricked, we go by ourselves. Trauma in your brain, they study neurobiology, creates isolation with even the neurons in your brain and from other people. There's something in all of us that just thinks, I'm going to go it alone. And then when we come to discipleship and sanctification, so many of us think that's the plan. If I read my Bible and I journal correctly and I pray correctly, I'll go out into the world and I'll be a better individual. That's the cart before the horse. What is the, what is the horse? Partnership in the spirit. Listen to what he does. And I want to go back to verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart doing what? 
making you better, making you a better person, what's he doing? I'll let you just say it out loud if you want. Crying. What? Daddy. That's what that is. Daddy. Who cries daddy? Children that have come to that moment where they realize, help. Help. You don't go, daddy. I mean, I've got this. Just wanted you to watch. It's a cry of partnership. I need you. That is the dance we are in every day for the rest of our lives. To not want that is our flesh. To want to go it alone is our own flesh trying to live by ourselves. Recently, I thought of the show The Incredible Hulk, the one that came out in like the 80s, maybe the 70s. I loved that show. Anyone? Tom, did you watch that show? Brian? The rest of you are like too young. It's not the like CGI. There's no CGI. This show has David Banner played by, I forget his name, Bruce. Uh, Bruce anyway. And every week, he goes into this new town, and he begins to succeed, and things are going well. Now, if you watch the intro, the intro shows, like, kind of the scenario, and what happens is if he gets angry, what happens is the Incredible Hulk. He becomes the Incredible Hulk. And there's that line every week, you won't like me when I'm angry, you know, and you're like, yeah. Well, he goes into some new town. He's doing great. Some bad things start to happen. He finds out. Eventually, he does become angry. And then the doom, and they zone in on his face, and they put little green contacts in his eyes because they don't have CGI at the time. And so you, oh, it's happening. He's turning into the Incredible Hulk. And then his shirt's rip, and there's green skin because Lou Ferrigno, who is the bodybuilder that played the Incredible Hulk, starts to take over, and he ramp, you know, he tears it all down and beats the bad guys up and crushes them, and they're dead or hurt, bleeding. And then, of course, he comes to, and it's back to the guy, and he's got his ripped clothes. And, and the good news is he's done some good. Now, he helped the problem. But every show, do you know how it ends? Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun. And there's a highway, like a two-lane blacktop, and he's walking away with his backpack to the next town all alone. And I loved it. <laughs> I mean, I thought that was the greatest show ever. Uh, but now I think about that and think that's kind of what we think sanctification is going to look like, isn't it? You know, we're going to live this life. We're going to do our best. We're going to show up, but don't make me angry. And when we get angry, we flip out. And again, that can happen in a lot of different sin patterns. And basically our answer is, I got to go to the next town. I think that's why a lot of us move so much. I think a lot of pastors do that. It's like, hey, I've got about a good five-year ability. And then when I get really known, you know, the honeymoon's over, so they move on and they move on. There's denominations who make that their whole strategy. The problem is, I remember Dan Iverson talking about Japan, and he said, at about eight years when you live in Japan, you're finally, as a foreign missionary to Japan, you're finally fluent. It takes eight years. And he says, that's when everyone leaves. So they began requiring a lifetime commitment because it's like you're finally usable and you're gone. Are we like that in our relationships? Right when you have this ability to be known and to love and to care and to partner, I think we leave. And I think that's, our, that's a lot of that's tied to our own view of the Christian life. We really think that we're to do it on our own and it just burns you out. Whereas the scriptures are very clear. The new man, the default of your redeemed self is 
Abba, Father on everything. When Paul says pray without ceasing, I think he's saying like, Lord, thank you for the snow. Like, Lord, you praise the Lord. You pray. Lord, that really just hurt me. Like that comment just really, that social media post bothered me. And you go to the Lord, Abba, Father. So let's talk about that now. Time is going to run out. So the process. I want to be very practical with this. I hope you believe these things. Number one, a Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. And that Holy Spirit is applying all the benefits of Christ. You are adopted, right? Two, the goal and the purpose of that Spirit is to progressively sanctify and make you look more like Jesus, okay? Which means that you're going to be feeling a lot, Abba, Father, because if I have to grow, I'm going to constantly be seeing my deficiency. That's the process. That's the part of Christianity we don't like. We want to read the manual, figure out a few good principles, and go succeed somewhere. And Jesus is like, no, you're going to like fail. You see the, the disciples failing over and over. But what the gospel says is, cheer up. You're worse than you think, but cheer up. You're also more loved than you know because the Spirit dwells in you. It's in that failure that you grow because you cry, Abba, Father. So for our process, what I want to do is walk you through another set of Ps that I think is, makes this work. All of these, the process is prayerful partnership. Like that's what it means to be a Christian. Here's what happens. The first thing you do is you're paying, we pray for that we would, you're paying attention. You're paying attention. Now, as children, we hated that, right? Pay attention. But it just means you're becoming aware of the things that set you off that trigger you. When I, Emily and I were newlyweds or five or so years in, we had Grayson was a baby. We went to Crested Butte, and my aunt lived there with her um, fiancé. And everybody in the mountains has these dogs that they shouldn't have. This dog had part wolf. You know those people? Part wolf. You're like, that's not normal. Well, this one was their little Nikki, huge. And one moment we're sitting in the living room. And I'm, I think, I may have embellished this. I think I could hear, we could hear a noise. Like, where's that high-pitched noise coming from? And then I see the dog, Nikki, wondering the same thing. She's looking. And she's scanning the crowd. And guess where her eyes end up? Locked on me. And I have this natural fear of dogs. Ask Brian about it. So I'm like, she looked at me. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And she comes, like, at me with just, just teeth gnarled, you know. I think I'm dead. Mark, like, catches her and takes her outside. And I'm sur- I, I still have trauma. I'm still reeling from it. But that sound triggered something in her. We all have things that get us. But I think we just blot, we go right over them. So these are the things that create fight, flight, or freezing. What causes you to fight? Right? What causes you to flight? Like I'm shutting them out. I'm out. Or to freeze like I did with the dog. The point is the spirit is asking us to pay attention to that. Most of us in our Christian lives are like, forget that. That's a lot of work. I'll just read my Bible, memorize some scriptures, join a Bible study, keep going. And the Bible's like, no, you need to find out what is in you that creates your loneliness and your isolation and make it clear, which is the second P, naming the pain. Like, what is it about that comment that hurts so bad? What is it about that look or that eye roll from your child that wanted, made you want to become like a six-year-old 
and just come out of your skin. Like our job is to name the thing, right? What is it about the thought of being alone that drove you to get wasted? Or, to the, you know, whatever the sin is, there's a pain behind it. So you're paying attention and you're naming the pain. Third one is your, the problem is sought. You're trying to find the underlying problem behind it. Like, right, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where Jesus is, right? Like, I had this desire. We talked about this last week. And before I ever even noticed it, I already went into sin mode. What is it that you're really searching for? See, I think what the gospel calls us to do is to pray. Like, so often we don't go back. We, we talk a lot about confessing sin. The purpose is it's the lab work. I can look at my yesterday outburst in my devotion with Jesus this morning and instead of being filled with shame because of my position, I'm loved, I can actually say, Lord, I know in that moment I was not believing that you loved me. What was it that got me? Why did I yell? Why did I freeze? Why did I, and whatever I did is based in something, a false belief. And I'm trying to uncover that in the gospel, right? Now, where is that in Galatians? Turn to chapter 5 and read the, de- the deeds of the flesh. Enmity, strife factions. These are just things the church has grown to say, who cares anymore? And yet Paul will say, no, joy, love, patience. How do we get to that fruit if we never even notice it's missing? So we pay attention, name the pain, find the underlying problem. And then this is where I think beautifully, if you've gone down this path, the position is reaffirmed. Once you realize, man, I quit believing I was loved. I quit believing Jesus cherishes me in that moment. Then you come back to these promises. You are a son, a daughter. The spirit lives in you. And you rejoice and you praise. Does that make sense? That's like the process of sanctification from the spirit dwelling in you. So my question is, are you paying attention to where you go it alone? Where do you figure it out on your own, what you're going to do, your, your tactic, relationally? What do you, what's your sin pattern? Do you all know, your, like, do you all know sort of like, here's something I struggle with repeatedly? I would, I would beg you to not hide, oh, I feel so ashamed. Like, with G, he knows. He died on a cross to pay for that. He sympathizes with it. He sent his spirit into you. He dwells in you. You're his child. And now he's saying, hey, let's talk about this. But not just by yourself. Maybe find other people. We're so embarrassed. When I meet with addicts who are getting better, they always talk to other people. Isn't that fascinating? But what do most of us think we're going to do? Oh, I'll just figure this out. I'll just kind of, I'll, I'll figure this out. And that's just not, that's not the spirit. So I'm inviting us, as we study Emmanuel, God with us, to know that his spirit dwells in you. And he cries, Abba, Father. And our job, then, is to prayerfully, in partner, with partnership, ask him to search our hearts and to show us what's underlying the pattern. And that's where the healing will come from. And I can say, I've had healing, not full healing. The problem is you see more problems, like you heal a little bit and you start to see all the, the things that need to be fixed. But when you start to realize, I don't have to get angry. 
I feel that temptation. But it is. It's touching. You need to touch this. That's what it is. Coleman, you were right. Sorry. I'm encouraging us as we live in a world of isolation to run to the Father in the Spirit, crying, Abba, Father, and to run to other people, which we'll talk about next week, and to not be isolated. Does that make sense? If you have questions, email, let's talk. Let's, this is important. But we're never meant to live apart from the Spirit dwelling in us, crying, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we need forgiveness for the way we run from you. Lord, we either just try to do it all by ourselves and get overwhelmed and then sin, or maybe we feel proud of ourselves because there's a season where we're succeeding at something. But Lord, as we look at Paul and then we look at this writing to the Galatians, let us have the humility to say we're no different from them. Lord, we too want to be perfected on the flesh. It's so much easier. It's so much easier to adopt a few strategies than to open our heart before you. Like you tell us in Hebrews 4, that your word cuts to the marrow, it cuts to the core. Lord, that's way too painful. So we just turn to other things that help us avoid that, and then we wonder why we're lonely and anxious and depressed. Teach us, Lord, to run to you. To run to you by ourselves in devotion, of course, but also as community, in worship, in small groups, to be known and to be loved. And Lord, let us chiefly remember the position you've given us on the cross, the position that we have as sons and daughters, fully known and fully loved. In your name we pray, amen.